you don't love me Why don't you tell me Instead of running around With all the other guys in town Can't you see You're hurting me Don't you We have Julie Klausner, who is most recently the author of I Don't Care About Your Band. Julie, how are you doing? Good, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to do this yes. on a rather imposing weather yeah, outside. Yeah, what are they calling it? The Snow Ricane? Yeah, so like Snowpocalypse a, is what they were using before. That was the DC event, and then yeah. I think they're calling a Snow Ricane uh, right now, which sounds like a... They're running out of lexical blending. I, I you know, God forbid, I, I dream of the day when that happens, and... I won't know what to do anymore. <laughs> we'll have to start making up new words. Well, let's start with some tedious questions that are absolutely general, and then we'll get to specific nitty-gritty. Uh, there's quite like a, a plan. bunch of juicy things to talk about. Yeah. Um, first off, I want to ask if the book arose from your modern love column or the modern love column arose from your book. Well, the chronology of it was that I was starting to come up with, I was starting to write stories about sort of disappointing dating and heartbreak experiences and um, I had submitted one of those stories to the modern love column that got rejected and I submitted another one and it um, I got an acceptance email and I was thrilled and yeah. my agent at the time my lit agent Scott Mendel who's awesome and he was very encouraging of like this is a really big opportunity you need to kind of put the pedal to metal about you know, getting this proposal together in time for the Modern Love to come out. Yeah. So it was definitely something I'd already been working on, but the exposure that that story brought was an opportunity for me to be like, all right, let's get this, you know, at least the outline for the book ready to go in time for it to come out. Which Modern Love column was rejected? I'm curious. Did it make it into the um, book? It, well, yeah, it's uh, it's the story I wrote about um, the Sweeney Todd actor. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they my like, boyfriend uh, at the time. And, Demon Barbers chopping things up, yeah. You know, who'd have thunk it? Because, you know, the times in Sondheim of, like, a long-standing friends with benefits relationship. Yeah. You know, it goes back to the 70s, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're... How did you balance the writing of this with all of your numerous other activities? Did you maintain any regimen or discipline along those lines? No, 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 no. Nothing? Oh, okay. <laughs> what I did was I wrote this book for a year and pretty, not nothing else, but that was really where my focus went. So yeah. I was teaching a couple classes, which I, you know, kept up, which is always good to have something when you're writing a book to, you know, force yourself to put on pants and um, run a comb through your hair. So I had a couple of scheduled teaching gigs, but I really didn't do much else. I, you know, did like the odd kind of blog post or magazine article, but it really became my full-time focus. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, did you have any specific daily word quota, or was it this kind of, oh, well, I remember that guy. Maybe I should throw him into the book. I am very much a list person, yeah. so I, if I don't have like a to-do list, then it, nothing ever gets done. So I was working off of an outline, um, and I knew that I had to cross off a list on the outline. And then once I did, then it would be rewriting the yeah. list that was, clock, was crossed off. So the first... It's like symbolic in that. It really is. I yeah. mean, it, it, it became a matter of, you know, cross off your laundry list and then go back and keep editing until you don't have time anymore yeah. sort of thing. So um, it wasn't a daily word quota as much as it was 
you know, wake up and write or wake up and edit. And yeah. um, and then I would, you know, as I got closer to the deadline, say, okay, I want to finish this chapter today. But um, it was just more about getting the finish line yeah. in the first draft. I presume that not all the men that you have been with made it into the book. Was there some sort of criteria? <laughs> no, they're on the cutting Did room someone floor. prove to be more noxious than the you other? Know, it's really just about who makes a good story and, yeah. and what makes a good story. And honestly, the modern love that got published, I remember thinking there's nothing to tell. This was literally one date, one and a half dates if you count me going over to his place a second time and yeah. it was such a nothing and it was not a guy that I really spent a lot of time I didn't shed a tear over so yeah. I was like there can't be a story here but as I retold it I sort of found things whether they were jokes or whether they were sort of more universal kind of truths to what I was talking about that it in my opinion started to become a good story whereas you know the bigger sweeping like relationships are tougher to get like you know what's your angle what's your yeah. point of view what's your like you know oh i hate this term but somebody somebody taught this what's your elevator pitch yeah no, I hate that term Isn't too. That terrible? But it does lead me to wonder if you dated men with the idea of like, oh, maybe they might make a good story for the book during that one year <laughs> period if you were running out of yeah. sordid details. I only did one thing for the book that was for the book, which was that I went to Minnesota to meet um, the pen pal that I had yeah. when I was 15. And um, the 30th birthday. That was on my 30th birthday, and I yeah. and I wanted to write about it. But I didn't write about it until like a good three or four months after it had happened because I didn't know what my take on it was. Oh. It had to sort of simmer and then that was sort of the chapter, that's the chapter I like reading best if I, you know, I'm forced to like go back and read the book again even though it's so subjective and you get more and more distance you're able to read it but that's my favorite chapter right now and yeah. I think writing it had to do with sort of slogging through the details and then not knowing what my point of view was, not knowing what my point of view was and then going back and saying, oh, this is what, this is what happened, or this is what I, how I'm going to end it. This is what I'm going to call it. Did you let him know that he was going to be book fodder? No, no. no. You, because you, you didn't contact anybody and said, "Hey, you're in the book. There's nothing along those no, lines." No, I mean, I think that the, the the principal like issue of the the experiences that I'm writing about was that they weren't relationships. Like, I have I only have two ex boyfriends and. I talked to one of them I'm friendly with. He knew about it. He read it, and he was happy with how he was portrayed. The other, like, texted me before the pub date and was like, how many cocktails should I have? And I was like, oh, you're <laughs> fine. You know, I think you come across well. Or I hope you do. And, yeah. But otherwise, these are all guys that I never heard from again in a lot of cases. And then in other cases, maybe wanted something to happen, but it, it didn't. So... The point is that I'm sort of not in touch with any of them socially yeah. now, so that if they were to get in touch, it would be, you know, kind of weird. Or that I, if I were going to get in touch, it would be kind of weird. Like, I don't know. I, I, I was uh, talking with Kevin Samsell about this very predicament, yes. about people who you wrote about in your book contacting you through what Facebook. Or through, well, I'm just I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts about how well, many people actually contacted you once the book was it's out. interesting. Was well... Uh, only my two ex-boyfriends, who you know, those are like the only two ex-boyfriends I've ever had. But um, it's an interesting question, and I'm curious to hear what Kevin said because I was sort of commiserating uh, online very late at night. I couldn't sleep, and I 
had blogged something that like interviewers were asking me constantly like what have you have you heard from the guys have you heard from the guys and I was like is this a question that male memoirists get because I wondered about that I'm gender neutral on this question oh no 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 totally it's not about it's not about you like I'm not you know accusing you it was more of a question of like does Jonathan Ames get asked you know how do the women feel or is it more like you're really putting yourself out there with your sexual experiences so that's something I was wondering. And also, these were questions that were posited as a la, like, was this your revenge? And I'm like, oh, honey, like, come on. Well, Sam still <laughs> had to deal with this old childhood friend contacting him through Facebook and leaving passive-aggressive notes on his oh, wall. Those, are, those uh, yeah, are always the so, best. That's what Facebook was invented for, yeah, exactly, obviously. Exactly. So what did he do? Did he delete the friend? He eventually or? unfriended him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That seems like the best... Uh, the best solution. No, the only person I've heard from since the book has come out, um, not one of the guys I wrote about, but the woman that he began dating after and arguably during our, uh, I don't want to say relationship because it wasn't a relationship as much as it was just sort of like a situation or experience. Um, And she had written me an email and she was really unhappy with how he was portrayed, which was... Again, like, I think that's more between her and him. But at the same time, you put yourself out there in that really personal way. You are you have to expect people taking it as an invitation to be like, I know what you're talking about, and here's what I think about that thing. and yeah. Or, you know, I have a heartbreak story, too, and here it is. Yeah. So I acknowledge it, but it was also funny that she was writing to me instead of him. You're careful not to use the word relationship. Yes. Is, does this fall into the line of disappointments that yes. a, a past uh, dalliance would be well, yes. categorized as a disappointment? Well, it's a better word than miscarriage, isn't yeah. it? Like <laughs> relationship miscarriage. Well, I would call it a miscarriage. You know, like just things that didn't carry out to term. I mean, yeah. it, it was. You can't call it an aborted relationship, so. You know, you know I might if I have another glass yeah. of wine. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask you of your keen interest in the Muppets. Yes. Um, You know, I was very interested in this. You have a great affinity for Miss Piggy. Yes. Um, But you have a problem with the Miss Piggy Kermit (laughs) wedding, particularly the line, what better way could anything end hand in hand with a friend? You know, um, you insist that this represents Kermit's preference for guys or going out with the guys instead of actually having commitment. Sort of. Or that, like, he, like, in other words, like, in the most... How he feels about her deep in his heart is almost like how he feels about like Fozzie, like uh, yeah, but, that she's a friend of his more than anything else. That he's but, she's not special. I guess. But you've developed an entire theory about your yeah. life based off of this, and this yeah. caused yeah. me some That's confusion. Normal, right? Well, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I want to just poke holes, holes in this. Sure, uh, poke I mean, first away. of all, you have Miss Piggy, voiced in a high-pitched tenor by Frank Oz. Frank Oz, Oz the yeah. great, the great Frank Oz. Yes, and Kermit the Frog by Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. Depending upon how obsessive a Muppets fan you talk sure, with, sure. it's kind of a bromance thing more than a romance thing between Oz and Henson. So therefore, your whole childhood theory yes. may very well be spoiled by what was going on underneath the uh, Muppets. You know? um, that's interesting. So you do you, let me ask you this. Do you think of Miss Piggy as a man in drag, or do you think of her as a lady? Like I think you... of her as a wonderfully polygender, uh-huh, polysexual uh-huh. queen. That's a beautiful I think, answer. I mean, you know, but I mean, I'm just wondering if this had yeah. occurred to you because you've seen the Muppet movie so many times. Oh my God, I love the Muppets, and I'm a huge fan of the Muppets. And like 
my interpretation of the relationship between Kermit and Miss Piggy is, I mean, it's obviously cheeky. I'm not going to go around and be like, you know, children shouldn't watch this filth. It's going to give them bad ideas. But I, I remember identifying with their relationship as being very, you know, it, it resembled a lot of the dating experiences that I'd had, which was that I was always chasing this sort of skinny guy that was more interested in his friends and his projects and his band or like, you know, his show than, than me and, you know, the other, and, and, and that, I mean, it's an interesting way to think of Miss Piggy as like a drag queen as like, you know, yeah. Frank Oz, because drag queens are sort of hyper feminine and that sort of glamorous, you know, like jewelry and perfume and like fabulous performers and all of it. Uh, and I've hilarious. seen that karate chop deployed and under the, the castro. Yeah, I'm sure I, yeah, you yeah, have. Yeah. And you know what? I don't even know where the target was, but it was probably yeah. well deserved. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. But I, but, but in the book, I at least posit like I start that chapter not by it's not about saying Kermit stinks as much as it is that I grew up idolizing Piggy and I thought she was the coolest bitch in the room. I mean, like there was no contest. She was, you know, this all this this fabulous, glamorous, hilarious. You know, I mean. She would eat bonbons, and then she would take bubble baths, and it was never anything like Irma Bombecki about yeah. it. It was never like, I've got PMS. Like, it was just, you know, this is what you do if you're fabulous, and I just didn't really put together that, like, Kermit didn't appreciate her as yeah. his girlfriend the way he should have until later in life. What do you make of the Charles Grodin situation in The Great uh, Muppet Caper? I mean, Scandalous. Yeah, scandalous. scandalous. Well, scandalous. Charles Grodin is, uh, is a heartbreaker and a homewrecker. Uh, and he, I think, plays the plays best against either Muppets, like large dogs, um, or Mia Farrow, who's actually kind of Muppety when you think about yeah. it, at least in Rosemary's Baby with those tent dresses. And when she was doing her starving exercise on YouTube. Oh, I do remember, you remember that. remember this? This is yeah. like last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, you know what? There are... There are a lot of people that are less Muppety than Mia Farrow, even today. Yeah. So therefore, because the world is naturally exaggerated, because truth is stranger than fiction, one can, in fact, look to the Muppets as a viable cultural construct with which to navigate a role or, in life. Or sort of applaud the Muppets as being so original and innovative and iconic that even today you sort of scratch your head and say, hey, there are some really human archetypes that are being explored in this like sort of quasi vaudevillian way that actually are still, first of all, highly entertaining. I can't think of a show that has been as entertaining as The Muppet Show, and, and I love television. I'm not one of these people that's like, TV's been terrible since the 70s. I mean, I think it's a credit to how good it is that we're still talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, on the subject of Charles Grodin, I should point Please. out you confess to having crushes on the likes of Michael Keaton, Michael Nesmith, yes. uh, and even and most notably John Larroquette. Yes. What is the common factor here? I mean, you describe yes. at the beginning of the book uh, how, how your dad affected mm -hmm. your viewpoint on men, but mm. these are very interesting, yes. quirky, older gentlemen. They are older uh, and they are men. I mean, Sometimes I think, decaying, too, yeah. Um, yes, occasionally in a state of decay. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that there is a lot to them being men. I mean, I don't think any of those people you can describe as a guy or a boy. I mean, I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, character actory, like uh -huh. a lot of personality. Um, the the John Larroquette crush had to do with context in that particular episode of Night Court, yeah. um, which was, you know, a pretty dark sitcom when you think about oh, it. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there was just it, there were hookers and homeless and like it was uh, certainly of his time. But I do wonder about the contemporary state of like celebrity. I mean, you, you do see less and less men in the public eye unless they're politicians almost yeah. and you see more and more i mean who are who are the people that women have a crush on now like most notably is john ham because he is sort of the closest thing to being a man in that sort of vintage way but you know you have like the guys from gossip girl and you have you know even like jake gyllenhaal who i know a lot of women like is very boyish to me uh-huh. whereas growing up in the 80s, early 80s to mid 80s to late 80s, there were adults in movies. There were movie stars. It was Sigourney Weaver and Michael Douglas, or, or you know, like you mentioned, Charles Grodin. Or you wouldn't you wouldn't put a 19 year old like Tyler Swift, Taylor Swift, I'm sorry, on the cover of People magazine. Yeah. It would be, you know, Melanie Griffith or Angela Bassett. I mean, it was a different. It was. Adulthood was less seamless from youth culture in the yeah. 80s. There was definitely like a kid's table, and now I feel like the kid's table has taken over the culture. So the gist I'm getting here is that you were drawn to these figures from a very yes, early age absolutely. because they absolutely spelled out men. There, yes. there was no yes. no quibbling with it. They couldn't be identified as boys. Yes. Yeah. Um, and also, they were funny. They were interesting. They had personality, and yeah. they were sexy to me. And um, you know, off the beaten path a little, but not, not uh, confidence. You would say. You know, it's or masculine. It's interesting what people think is masculine, though. Now, I mean, I think I that I think that it, it really ranges, and I I always I always thought funny was really attractive, and. Um, well, Mike Nesmith, you just can't argue with. I mean, he's he's sort of the only musician that still kind of like makes me swoon a little bit when yeah. I see play the guitar in those old like concert films of the Monkees in like the early '70s, late '60s. I just I can't even. My heart can't even take it. <laughs> well, to, I'm curious. I mean, going back to your early dalliances yes. or your early disappointments. Sure. Uh, I'm wondering to what degree your early attraction to, say, inconsiderate skateboarders in yeah. New Rochelle yeah, or uh, yeah. drama boys who treated you like dirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm wondering how much this has been responsible for you finding men later in life mm-hmm. who fulfilled more or less the same criteria. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, and I'm also curious if writing about these many men were mm-hmm. per- permitted you to sort of find specific patterns uh, and to strike them off the list, as you as you sure. so say. I think that anything women do is educative. Women love learning things. <laughs> women love taking classes and telling each other, well, you learn from it whenever they're brokenhearted or upset. So there was certainly a lot to learn putting this stuff down and certainly a lot to remember. But as far as those old experiences... I I defend them in that they were the crumbs that were available when I was starving. Yeah. And when you are hungry for intimacy, for connection, you take what's available to you. So that said, there certainly were patterns I recognized and broke, but writing about them doesn't allow you to do that. Living them does. And, yeah. and feeling that 
pain and that like, oh, I'm really hurt or, oh, this is rock bottom, which is such a funny expression as though there is such a thing. Uh, and um, I think that you only learn from experience. You don't learn from storytelling. You don't learn from rumination or reflection well, you or postmortem. You learn what you think, but I don't, I, well, I don't know about that. Maybe you can convince yourself to change your behavior if you spend enough time in your head and... Uh, I mean, maybe is that the isn't that the premise of psychoanalysis? <laughs> yes. So, so they say that's still on the table. I Although mean, people have different ways not, of approaching that. Yeah. I think we have to wait for the next generation to die out before we figure out if psychoanalysis works or not. <laughs> I mean, look, there's there's far worse ways to spend a Wednesday afternoon. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Wednesday afternoon. Ideally, Wednesday afternoon for. Psych isn't that what happens? They spend you spend a lot of time. I mean, it's but expensive. Why Wednesday afternoon? Why oh, that? just like or Thursday At, morning, whenever whenever he can see you. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that you've seen psychoanalysts? I've never seen a psychoanalyst. I've seen a, a you know cognitive behavioral therapist. How long did that go on? Oh, I, I you know endlessly. I mean, I I see her. It's like my longest relationship. <laughs> like I see her, and then I longer don't than your dermatologist. More from my what? Longer than your dermatologist? Longer than my dermatologist, certainly. Yes, absolutely. But uh, didn't make an appearance in this book. Why is that? Um, I think I mentioned her once or twice, don't I? I, don't, I never mentioned my I shrink. Think, I, 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 hmm. Yeah, I believe there's one I do, because I, yeah. I think I mentioned I've been in, like, in like an Alvy Singer-like yeah. duration that's right, therapy. That's right. Yeah. But, um... No, she's she's hugely intelligent, and she's like my second mom. I think that's what <laughs> that's what the dynamic is for a lot of women yeah. that have yeah Jewish shrinks that they've seen for a long time. That's that's true. Yeah. Uh, you observe that men have the impulse to catalog their musical tastes, yes. and yet your book also contains, as we yeah. see, a cataloging impulse. Yeah. Uh, when chronicling your ability to relate to men, you mm. write, what I personally delight in is a language unintelligible to a girl-liking boy, with the exception of certain types of straights like tea-sipping, PBS aficionados, and actors. Now, as a red-blooded male who, uh, <laughs> by the way, happens to like football and books, who mm -hmm. uh, prefers coffee to tea but also does like PBS, I must object to your little roping here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if, if such categorization, include, including the vegan categories you sure, mentioned sure. later in the book, uh, do you think that... Uh, that this may be partly responsible for why you have been drawn to, I suppose, certain types. Uh, a natural categorizer gets attracted to certain types. Sure. And, uh, maybe we can start from there. Yeah, and I think it is also naturally draws me to comedy. I mean, I think that <laughs> the type is almost irrelevant when you look or at the, demographics. the world Thank God you didn't go into advertising. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, yeah, God forbid. But no, no, I, I think it's... Uh, I think that judging quickly is a really good asset for doing the kind of writing that I do, which is, hey, you ever notice that, you know, like, Jewish guys are like, blah, 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 and like, Catholic girls are like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that there's definitely, you know, a huge generalization slash judging quotient that is important uh, drawing the sort of comedic conclusions I'm looking for with jokes. But, um, but, but does it help me seek out types? Uh, sure. I think that, look, I, I think I even poke fun of myself as being very judgmental yeah. in the book and saying, like, if I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental. And I acknowledge that saying that at this point is akin to someone writing a manual of auto mechanics and saying, no, I don't want to yap too much about cars. But I think that, I think that, like, that 
that helps you cope with the raw experience of things that shatter you. And you're looking for patterns. Looking then. back, looking for patterns, looking back, making sense of chaos that hurts so badly that it seems pointless and and also laughing at it and saying like, geez, what's up with this guy? He had a Soundgarden sticker on his car. And then you, your friend goes into peals of laughter because it's recognition. And then it's also kind of like forging together this, you know, like hypothesis about human experience or human behavior. Yeah. And then also I think thinking in archetypes is, probably something that at the very least helps prepare you for searching for the thing that it is that you want so that when I did meet my boyfriend before I recognized anything else about him that he has a great heart that he's funny that he's you know a kind person and intelligent I saw him in the room and I just thought grown up and it was like I was like a dog you know saying gravy or, or yeah. whatever but to think that broadly is not always hurtful yeah well i get the grown-up thing that's a, an extremely general quality sure. and it can be suffused by additional unique qualities yes. uh, that uh, that you can't find anybody else but that's the risk here i mean yes. you know if you are looking for someone who is absolutely specific and you're drawn to types yes. how do you reconcile that well i think that you like you know you just learn from experience and say how much am I gonna say this never again? And how much am I gonna how much am I gonna identify with personality never again? And how much am I gonna reconcile with behavior never again? Yeah. Because you could say, oh, I'm never gonna date a skater again, or I'm never gonna date a guy that treats me horribly again. <laughs> and yeah. the two are very different. So one of the things I try to do, you know, later on in the book and in like my 20s when I was trying to actually learn instead of just like, I'm going to make mistakes and it'll be great. Um, I tried to go by behavioral cues as opposed to, oh, you know, he's wearing a really stupid jacket. Yeah. And, and I don't think that that's something women aren't amenable to. I think that... I think women tend to be depicted as more shallow than they actually are, but that if they're looking for things that aren't shallow, tend to see past the stuff that they don't like that isn't as important. But judging someone on by a Soundgarden sticker or a jacket, is, you know, that's not exactly the best I way. I will say that when I do make fun of people for stuff like that, it's usually after they've already hurt me. Uh -huh. So that when you're going into it, yeah. you're like, oh yeah, he has a Soundgarden sticker. I'm going to put my blinders on and hope that this works out. And if it doesn't, I'm gonna go back in time and relentlessly make fun of him. But, but that's a risky proposition. I mean, superficial Absolutely. superficial judgment only to be confirmed and uh, justified yes. later. Yes. I mean, you know, how do you avoid this this hurt part? I mean, it's a repeating pattern throughout this book and yeah. you know, throughout your life. It's this guy that you went to Minnesota for, yeah. that wasn't that long ago. No, not and, at all. And that was again, not only fought it for the book, but also, this issue of whether you say no that you bring at the very tail end of the book, yes. it kind of, uh, it's, I'm not sure if, it, if it's something that can be broken down by decade, by 20, by living in the 20s or 30s. You're always yeah. going to make mistakes. You're always going to make mistakes. And there's, the, the other thing about my book, at least, is that I, I have no patience for regret. I think regret is such a Earth's kind of, like, you know, with all due respect to 
Protestants, including my boyfriend, it's like a very Protestant form of guilt. And it's useless. Unless it's educative, there's no point to, you know, making mistakes and forgiving yourself. So it's entirely useless? Well, I, I think that the way people marinate in it instead of learning from it and moving on is. So I guess it's more about reaction to regret. But different people have different reactions, and regret may yeah. also likewise be a nice buffer to a more healthier emotion, you know, I suppose. I don't, I don't really think of, and, and this is obviously coming from someone that has guilt instead of regret, but, yeah. but, but and that's also just like they're general. They're not that different, you know. I know, they're definitely not. Yeah. But that said, whenever I identify regret, I try to put it to the side because I, I feel that it's not, it's not helping me learn from it and move on, I guess. There's no time travel yet, as far as I know. You write about uh, David, who you call your yes. first real boyfriend, yes. and who proceeded to give you professional advice to turn down the glamour. Yes. Likewise, there's this long-distance relationship that's also predicated on a professional disparity. And I'm curious... Wait, that what... was the one with Alex? Yes, yes. And I'm curious if uh, why something along the lines of a professional disparity causes you to really identify the problem in a relationship. And when you say professional disparity, you mean that he was broke and unemployed and yeah. that I was paying for his plane yes, ticket exactly. to come out and then here? The, and then this other guy, you know, your first boyfriend, yeah, yeah. is basically just saying turn down the glamour and it's a there's a, a decided disparity here, I would say. I think what the turn down the glamour chapter had to do with was my feeling alienated in my world as a comedy writer, as a woman that wasn't kind of fitting in in the way that, you know, you... You see a lot of schlubby male comedy writers that aren't, they're, they're not averse to women. In fact, I think that's one of the problems about women not being in comedy as much as they get the impression that they're going to be, you know, roasted as soon as they get into yeah. the room. But there is certainly a very specific type in my world and in the music world and all kinds of creative professions that has to do with like a nerdy sort of you know, fear of girls as opposed to like, you know, who who let her in sort of fratty, obnoxious, overt hatred of girls. So yeah. that chapter had more to do with me identifying what it was like to be sort of a more traditionally feminine, kind of brassy, Miss Piggy type in that room. Yeah. Um, the, the like, the Alex chapter... So when you say professional disparity, what do you mean like about that you and the guy yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a there's a big high and a low, there's a big yes. gap. Yes. And that is and what is the question that it well, would the, be the question, like? Well, it's interesting that a huge gap in where each of you stand professionally yes. is responsible for the truth of the other person being revealed. That's 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 why yes. that's why yes. I asked. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um I think with Alex that was the beginning. That was a, that was a domino, you know. That was yeah. like the beginning of so many other disparities that were un insurmountable, including that he wouldn't have sex with me, and I flew him out here. Yeah. But there was a very just, and that's the chapter that people ask me most of it, like, whatever yeah. happened with him? Was he gay? And I'm like, I have no idea. And honestly, some stories don't have endings, and. That is one that I am just going to say this is really frustrating and sad, but this is a story about a long-distance relationship I had with this guy. We were texting and emailing and calling each other every day, and then he came up, and he was so good-looking, I wanted to kill myself. 
and he wouldn't have sex with me. And it was like, why isn't he? And I don't know, but it also had to do with him being scared of moving to New York and taking steps to make money. And I'm also, I, I also feel the discomfort around talking about money and professional disparity, as you yeah. call it, because I think that chiclet, for lack of a better term, has done a sort of, you know, it, it, it's done a good job of setting women back in a little bit of a way because it, it sort of posits us as sort of gold digging, shallow, like shoe hookers. And I, I would, was I very much. <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm I mean, sorry. no, no, I mean, Jennifer Weiner's books feature some of the most honest dialogue and conversations and behavior among women. Whether or not the proof is in the pudding or whether it's just in its perception like I'm thinking of Sex and the City which yeah. I think was a great show to some extent like there were some great episodes of it yeah. and the movie was insanely long and just you know I didn't think it was in the same spirit of the show that's all I will say about the movie except that it was terrible and it was way too long but um, but I love Sex and the City the show and I think that the backlash is sort of its own thing as opposed to the actual content and when it comes to Chiclet women have sort of been trivialized as the sex and intimacy seeking ones of us have kind of been reduced to in perception only or in some cases in you know the actual books maybe not Jennifer Weiner as you know sort of shallow you know like I said gold digging shoe hookers and I really wasn't looking for that when it came to Alex it was more of a question of you know, why aren't you making money? Why aren't you able to fly yourself out here? You're 32. What's going on? Just as if I were 32 and I wasn't able to fly myself on a domestic flight with five weeks notice, it would be a question of like, why not? And this is coming from, you know, someone who does support herself. So it's, not a matter of I, you know, men should be doing, you know, men should be whatever. But, but I do, I do get that sense that men are in particularly like very defensive about that. They, 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 they get like red flag, like gold digger rules, girls like alerts with that stuff for sure. Go, going back to what we were talking about earlier, which was this notion of being the odd one out in this yes. male-dominated workplace. It also reminds me of the sharp observations you make between Pam and yes. Dawn from The Office. Yes. I have to be more of a Dawn person myself. Oh, good. Uh, me too. You know, I... I She's well, devastating. But, but, but it is interesting because... It's very Americanized. Very Americanized, but you have to also understand that the workplace environment, I would say, yeah. in, in the American version of The Office is mm. more of a force and more of a restricting force to a woman's ability to express herself or to be herself or to even be ambitious in any sense than Dawn, who at least, you know she's gonna be somewhere else in a few years, where Pam does not do have you, that option. Do you, well, with the right support maybe or with the right encouragement? She seems very, I mean, both of them are beta yeah. girls, but in other words, like, you're saying that like the British version, everybody's beta? Whereas in American version, like people are more career focused, more career ambitious. focused, or they're willing to settle for this go nowhere office job. Sure. Yeah, but but I mean, I I find it you know that's interesting. And, and also going back to what you're talking about about being a woman in comedy, yes. and having to 
fight some of these perceptions? I mean, it seems to me that you're still fighting these to a large sure, degree. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Mindy is sort of the stand-in for Don on the American office. And as a writer behind the scenes as well, I think she's kind of best of both worlds. I think her character is great. Yeah. And especially in that office job kind of environment, everybody's sort of known the, like, flirty girl or the, you know, hyper-feminine girl that wants to be your best friend and... Whether or not you find it distasteful or whether or not you find it funny, it's definitely something I think is a really sharp observation of, um, you know, of, of, of what's, what kind of women there are. And, and often, I guess with Pam, I felt like that character was so obviously written by a guy that as great of an actor as, as Jenna is. I, yeah, and she really is. And I think that she gets a lot of great jokes and she lands them like a total pro. I mean, there's no question she's talented, but that they went with that type really speaks more to the guy who wrote it than it does to and then it than it does to I guess it speaks to the guy who wrote it and what he likes when it comes to women. Yeah. I'll put it that way. But we're talking about gender roles contained yes. within television and contained within comedy. Yes. And I'm Again, we're going back to types here. Yes. Uh, well, at least she gets jokes. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing. There's so many. I mean, every like every rom com that doesn't star Sandra Bullock is is a or that was produced by Nancy Myers or Nora Ephron is going to be guys get all the jokes. The women are stunningly thin, and their highlights are perfect. And you know, until very recently, television is was sitcom dominated, and it consisted of you know grown men acting like fools and their wives being like honey that's crazy that's the female's job in comedy more often than not yeah well, what what do you propose as a solution to this epidemic oh that they bring back the comeback with lisa kudrow and they do a million more seasons of it and i just rewatched that and i um it was so ahead of its time it's definitely flawed uh, have you seen it, the comeback? Have not. It's worth watching. I mean, it was like an early aughts version of like a mock doc style TV show. It was on HBO, and you know, it was dealing with reality television, which at the time was pretty nascent. But now, I mean, I would love to see them bring it back now and see how those characters have changed. But more than anything, Lisa Kudrow was so funny and so good on that show and the way that like Larry David is and Curb Your Enthusiasm she would do things that would just make you cringe but you'd love her anyway because she was so funny and it's tough to identify with a woman in that role but at the same time I think that sometimes you got to be ahead of the audience and just say look this is a thing if you like it great if you don't maybe you'll catch on to it eventually but in doing theatrical comedy, which mm-hmm. which you do, mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering if uh, there's less of a problem along those lines. There's less of a problem with these, these types or these stereotypes. I mean, to some degree, this serves as a fantasy for some people yeah. to sort of cope with the reality. And, and there are numerous types sure. of women around, or even, you know, not even types, just women in general of all, all types of unique, unique yeah. women. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, the question is... is I think uh, it just needs to be more female-helmed stuff and that has to do with writing more than being cast in that passive voice sort of way that there need to be more women who are 
you know, behind the scenes as well as in, in front of the camera. That's or more men who are willing to. to actually go ahead and cast women in those types of roles or to sacrifice their jokes. Or to bring in a consultant and say, hey, she would never say that. Or, yeah. hey, why not give her a joke? But I do think that, I don't know, I feel like we've done what we could do about like men being in charge and maybe have them be more sensitive. I think it's time to sort of diversify the behind the camera opportunities. Oh, I wanted to ask you about the whole crazy people at Advantage. Oh, sure. you, you identify crazy people as providing otherwise functional people with crazy sex. Now, why did the desire for crazy sex dwarf or transcend common sense? That's the that's the big question here. This is this is a repeat series of incidents here. And yeah. uh, why? Why? I mean, you well, fell into the trap again with that. With the when you fall in love, if I were like one of those sort of libertarian like you know, pendulette types where it's like, this is what chemically happens to your brain when you quote unquote fall in love. Like, I would probably have a certain distance to explaining that, you know, when you fall in love or when you have, you know, fabulous, intense, crazy sex and you translate those feelings to mean that you are falling in love, your brain becomes it's it it's high you're high you're it, you're creating hormones and you're creating chemicals or you're convincing yourself mentally that things are happening that aren't happening rationally yeah. so that was what i was trying to get across is that it's almost like an std that when you're you know having sex with someone that's crazy you can become crazy and that's also sort of my defense to the whole like women are crazy defense which is that's that's the thing that men love to say and admittedly women can be crazy but it's also you know you drove me crazy so of course i am now do you that's count do you count that does this crazy impulse essentially account for all the disappointments in this book uh, i mean certainly no. the certainly the julie brain must have popped in there at some moments oh sure but the brain is different than the heart or the you know chemicals that are seizing you at that point it doesn't seem like those are coming from a rational place i'm yeah. sure they'll figure it out with all the biodeterministic philosophy that's like driving you know neuroscience into that direction but for the time being you just have to be like oh my Emotions are telling me that I'm in love with this maniac who is terrible for me. <laughs> there are rational palpitations of the ventricles. I, I, I completely, you sound very convincing, and I, I'm completely a believer in what you just said. But you haven't actually practiced that. You know, I think that may come with age, and I think also I explained in that chapter that I was coming off of that experience with that guy, Alex, who wouldn't have sex with me, and it was like, you know, cause and effect sort of stuff that, oh, gee whiz, I come from this, and then I had this, and it was overwhelming, and therefore I reacted suchly, and I'm not apologizing for it, I'm not saying that it was justified either, but yeah. it definitely happened, and here is, I think, why. You, uh, you also write, there's something inherently repugnant about a naked man, and you express some concerns about the weirdness of the scrotum. Um, I'm wondering how you reconcile your viewpoint that the male body is chaotic and obscene, that it is funny like a monkey is funny, mm -hmm. with getting off on being treated badly by Greg. I mean, it seems to me that your viewpoint, in some degree, may have something to do with these circumstances. 
Definitely. I definitely think that there is an inherently masochistic tendency to female sexuality and female psychology. I think that that's what makes us okay with the pain of childbirth. I think that's why we felt guilty about leaving the Garden of Eden. I think that it is why whenever something terrible happens to us, we feel guilty even if we didn't bring it on ourselves. I think that that's how we are programmed, but like you were saying before, I don't think it's impossible to transcend those odds with the right sort of cognitive negotiating to say, okay, I'm smarter than this, I don't need to feel guilty. Um, but I also think that there's something very sophisticated about the female brain that's like, your body is ridiculous, Renoir would never paint it, it would look stupid surrounded by flowers and fruit versus mine, right? And yet, I love you like crazy and I am hugely sexually attracted to you. I think that's sort of the ultimate generosity of female psychology. Yeah. I mean, have your views on the naked human male improved or not improved or I said I suppose broadened or have you now started to find it not so ugly not so appalling you know, it's, I mean there are many always, women who love scrotums I'll have you know I'll, I'll you know what Somebody I look forward me, to yeah. meeting them <laughs> um, you know there's always something funny about a naked man that's why it's you know every once in a while they'll put a naked guy in a movie and it'll be really funny and then they'll give it an NC-17 rating as opposed to a naked woman that is just like set dressing at this but point. But naked women are funny too. Are they? They can be, yeah. I mean, sex is very funny. It is funny. Yeah. It is funny. I mean, it, you know, it, it, when you come right down to it, it's it's just an absurd concept sometimes. Oh, it's truly, truly, and like, and certainly like what we put ourselves through and its behest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But has it broadened? Not really, no. Uh. <laughs> it's still funny. I mean, I, I definitely love my boyfriend I mean but at the same time like he's just he's funny naked oh they all are yeah. they all are it's like going to you know are there is there more an austere naked male who is not as funny as the other ones uh quite possibly yeah. uh, quite possibly but I mean, this should be a new metric I think I agree. A new Q so we rating, should get so on, we should get on that we yeah. should get on that for sure all absolutely right. all right well if anything comes about, I'll, I'll have the I'll send you. I'll show you the patent. I'll, I'll yeah. send you constant updates. Yeah. All right. Well, Julie, thanks so much Thank for, you for uh, having me. And it was likewise.